So Jeremy and I uh, are in the middle of this series telling the big story of the Bible, trying to fit the little stories of the Bible into a context so that whatever part of the Bible we're reading, we can kind of understand how it plays into the large story. And here we are at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is where we are in the big story. Israel became a huge nation in Egypt, but that brought its own problems. It was a blessing from God, but it turned into a difficulty as the Egyptians uh, saw the Israelites, the larger they got, as an increasing threat and, and began to oppress them and make more and more moves to bring them under control. Eventually, the Israelites are essentially slaves in the nation of Egypt. And they're groaning and they're crying out. And God comes with that mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and He rescues them. He takes them to be His own nation. Ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. And He brings them to Mount Sinai. And there He gives them His law. He says, this is how you're going to be My chosen people, my royal priesthood for the entire world. There's a crisis at Mount Sinai, as we all know. The crisis is of the golden calf. Israel, in the very time when they're meeting with God, turns away to make idols. They may have thought that they were honoring God They may have thought many things. It's time to go back to Egypt and re-establish our connection with the gods there. But God said, I can't go with you anymore. I'm here on this mountain. I've come down to meet with you, but I can't go with you anymore. If I go with the people... I will break out against them. I'll kill them all. That's a crisis. Exodus chapter 32. God's holiness is too perfect to look on sin. How can God be with His people? The solution to that problem is the tabernacle. How is God going to be with His people God does an amazing thing. He says, I will make a way so that my presence can be with my people. (coughs) And it turns out that theme of how God can be here with us is one of the major themes of the big story of the Bible. God making His dwelling place among his people. In 1965, Dionne Warwick was offered a song. She turned it down, and so Burt Bacharach and his writing partner that had constructed this song turned it over to a singer named uh, Jackie DeShannon. The first person to record this song was Jackie DeShannon. Uh, it became a hit for her, one of her first hits. She went on to record many others. And this song ends up being one of the most recognizable pop songs of all time, certainly of the 20th century, recorded by 
uh, eventually Dionne Warwick record, records it just a year or two later. Uh, Diana Ross records it. About a hundred different recording artists record this song. The lyrics are very, very simple. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love. That's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. I'm sorry I can't sing it. I dare not. Uh, I wish I could. That's a great song. It's almost accurate. Because God is love. And so, Burt Bacharach and his writing buddies almost got it right. What the world needs now is God. Sweet God. No, not just for some. But for everyone. That's the only thing that there's just too little of. You know, this is God's world. That's part of the big story. God creates this world, fills it with blessings. Every blessing you've ever enjoyed, the millions of blessings you don't even notice because they're what keep you alive, and the blessings that occasionally rise into your consciousness because they fill you with so much joy, so much happiness, so much pleasure. Every one of those comes from one single source, God. And why does this world still have problems? Why is there disease? Why is there famine? Why is there earthquake? Why are these things? Because there's just too little God in the world. Why are people hateful instead of loving? Because there's just too little God. That's the only thing that there's too little of. Everything that you want is really just a pointer to your want for God. You need more God. The world needs more God. And the big story of the Bible is how that's going to happen. Because God, turns out, has a plan. The problem really isn't on God's side. The problem is on our side. Because we keep thinking, okay, that's enough, God. We got it from here, God. We're going to keep this part for ourselves and we're going to see what we can do. And again and again and again, we make a mess of it. Again and again and again, we bite the forbidden fruit. Again and again and again, human beings are cast out of Eden. Again and again and again, we turn our face away from God. What the world needs now is God. And so at Mount Sinai, an amazing thing happens. God tells Moses, get the people to welcome me into a dwelling place in the middle of them. Make that place and I'll come and live there. 
How many of you have read the book of Exodus recently? Don't raise your hands. If you count the words in the book of Exodus, when we think of Exodus, we think of Moses, we think of the plagues, we think of the contest in Egypt, there is way more ink spilt, way more ink dedicated to the richness of the decorations of this one tent at the foot of Mount Sinai than to all ten of the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the contest with Pharaoh, all of that together. The book of Exodus is really about this event. Will Israel actually welcome God to come further into their life as a nation by building this place? And what's glorious is they do. There's just an outpouring of generosity. You read the story of Exodus, and, and Moses eventually has said, okay, okay, that's plenty. We're going to be able to do great. We're going to make a wonderful tent. You don't have to bring us any more stuff. The people are excited to bring God closer to them. And God says, and I will come and dwell with you. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. And then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. So I will dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. In the tabernacle, God made his home with his people. If you diagnose what's wrong with the world, the correct answer is going to be, we lack God. We need to bring more God here into the world. Every place there's a problem. Disease needs God. Hunger needs God. Loneliness needs God. Every problem you can think of is because of a lack of God. Can we welcome God into the world? And here at the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel builds a tent and says, God, we want you to live among us. We want you to dwell with us. And God says, I will. I will. That principle, building the tabernacle, turns into the temple, of course. Eventually, the tabernacle exists for many centuries when Israel's finally in the land of promise. But finally, King David... And ultimately, his son, King Solomon. David makes the preparations. He's not allowed to complete the building because he's a man of warfare, a man of blood. King Solomon is able to complete the building of the temple. And and First Kings, the verse that I picked for you. By the way, this is another one of these where I just had a horrible time selecting the Scriptures because there's just too many of them about this topic. It's just, it just runs through the Bible. This idea. But I picked this one from the dedication, uh, Solomon's dedication to, to, uh, of the temple and prayer to God. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Yet, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays. 
towards this place. God graciously does hear Solomon's prayer. Once again, Israel goes to elaborate expense, elaborate effort in order to welcome God to say, we want you to have a permanent home here among us. And God takes up residence at the end of this dedication process in 1 Kings. We actually have the same kind of moment as at the end of Exodus. The glory of God, the Shekinah of God comes and fills the temple just as it filled the original tabernacle so powerfully that nobody can go in. It's God is there. We want God to live with us. Now, there are requirements when God lives in your neighborhood. When God lives with you, there are strict rules. It's interesting. I, I Again, I ran out of space. You can go through the laws in... Uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and again and again and again. One of the things that connects those laws up with our lives is that because I am dwelling among you, you must be holy. Because I'm living in your land, you must not defile the land. Because I have chosen to make my name live with you, you must Keep my commands. It happens again and again and again. It's a theme again all the way through that part of Scripture. If, if, if I invite God into my life, that changes my life. And it's a glorious moment. It's a high point for Israel that they say, yes, we want more God in our life. We want to invite God in. We want to make a place for Him here, this house. We know it's not enough. God's too big, but but we want God to be here with us. God is too big for the whole universe. Yet He made His home in the temple as He had in the tabernacle. Solomon knows that God is the Creator of everything. So even if the entire universe were His temple, He would still be bigger than that. And yet God has condescended. God has chosen to come down and say, this is a special place where my home, heaven, comes and joins up with earth. It's a meeting place. A place where we can come together and where the presence of God can be manifest in our lives. This theme of the temple, that God has chosen a place where He can be present because we need more God. Even when we rebel against God, we, we, we are hurting ourselves, not God. Even when we run away from God, we are running away from our own best interest. We need more God. And the prophets know this. Now, they don't see it clearly. They see it only dimly. But again and again and again, and I only picked two passages, but I could have picked many. Isaiah 2, verse 2 and following. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream into it. And the passage goes on to talk about beating swords into plowshares and, and people streaming to learn about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaiah ends with that same vision or a variation on that same vision. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, 
all mankind, all humankind will come and bow down before me. The prophets, like all prophetic visions, it's dim, it's confused, it's difficult to separate out all the different elements. That's the way prophecy works. The prophets see dimly that God will somehow bring the entire world into his temple. That's what they're visioning. Somehow, some way, not just Israel, not just for some, but for everyone, not just Israel. The whole world needs the blessing of the presence of God. And God has a plan to make that happen. The prophets don't see clearly. It's not given to them to see clearly. We begin to see it more clearly in the New Testament. How does the book of Matthew, your first gospel, first chapter you read in the New Testament, how does it name Jesus Christ? Emmanuel. And in case you don't get the message, Matthew translates that for you. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And it's interesting. I think you can make the case from all four Gospels, certainly from Matthew, certainly from the Gospel of John, wherever Jesus goes, He's the temple. The temple itself, the temple in Jerusalem, had, had, had fallen away. It, 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 it was failing to really carry out its mission of bringing the presence of God and making it real in people's life. But wherever Jesus goes, suddenly there's the real temple. God's actually with us. Jesus walking around. God with us. You sick? God with us. Jesus makes you well. You're guilty? God with us. Forgiveness of sins. You are oppressed by evil spirits. God with us. The spirits have to flee. Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the temple of God. While Jesus is on earth, He fulfills the role of God's temple. John 14, verses 8 and 9. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. It's one of the great passages in John. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Some translate it, don't you know me yet, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That was that great moment in which Jesus Christ, a human being like you and me, and yet so much more than a human being like you and me, He is actually the presence of God on earth. And the whole tension of the Gospels is, who will welcome the presence of God? Who will say, we want more of this presence of God. We want more of this human who is a temple of God. We want this. And who will say, no. That's a threat to our life. I don't want that. I want that. Sealed up, I want that put away if necessary. I want that killed. Because I don't want more of the presence of God. That's the whole dynamic. All four Gospels take you through the drama. Who will say yes to the presence of God? Who will say no? Jesus dies. People think they finished Him. 
God raises him from the dead. And he says this amazing thing. Matthew 28. He's been the presence of God. He is, wherever he walks, is the temple of God. You know, just normal ground. Jesus steps onto it. Boom! Holy place. There's an ordinary rock on a hillside. Jesus sits on that rock and starts talking. Boom! Holy of holies. Just a big crowd of people who tummies are rumbling because they're hungry. Jesus starts praying to the Father, and boom, the multitudes are fed. And he says this, Jesus came to them, said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you to the very end of the age. God with us, Matthew says at the beginning of his Gospel. How is that true? How is the presence of God going to go out into the entire world? The end of the Gospel of Matthew, Isaiah's prophecy starts to become clear. You, my disciples... Ordinary human beings, you now become the carriers of the presence of God into the world. The temple principle travels with you. Everywhere you go and you preach my commands, everywhere you go and you baptize people and make them my disciples, everywhere that happens, holy ground. Every time you establish a congregation that is worshiping Jesus Christ, Holy of Holies. You're creating the temple of God. Isaiah said there's going to come a time when all the nations come streaming in. Jesus says, you twelve guys, that's your mission. Go do it. And that's what they do. And that becomes a dominant strain of theology in the New Testament. It's interesting, over and over and over again... The ritual practices, sacrifice, prayer, incense, you, you can hardly name a ritual practice of the Old Testament that doesn't have a spiritual counterpart attributed to the church in the New Testament. We are the temple now. That's what the New Testament says. Again, I was spoiled for choice on what verses to use to illustrate this principle. My favorite is still Ephesians 2. For a lot of reasons, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Consequently, you, the Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in Him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. I don't know if you believe this or not. It's hard for me to believe this, and I've studied this for a long time. But church, the reality is that the people sitting next to you on the pews, 
are priests and priestesses of God. And we right now are sitting in God's temple. God wants His presence to go out into the entire world. And the instrument He's chosen to do that is the people sitting next to you. What do you think of the people sitting next to you? You speaking to everybody sitting next to you? You friends with everybody sitting next to you? You got any grudges with people sitting next to you? Have you shared with people sitting next to you? God says, this is my plan. You're it. Be my temple. Every place I send you out, I have established another place where my presence can be in the world. Because what the world needs now is God. That's the only thing that there's just too little of. The world needs what our churches bring. I want us to be that. I do not want us to stray from our first love. I do not want us to fall away from our true calling. But every real church dedicated to God is inhabited by the Holy Spirit and mediates the presence of God into the world. It is a magnificent picture. It is a picture that has implications for your life and what you're going to do tomorrow. Because as a priest, as a priestess, as a holy royalty, wherever you go tomorrow, you are meant to be bringing holy ground with you, just like Jesus did. Before you arrive at work tomorrow, your cubicle is just a cubicle. Your computer is just a computer. Your workspace is just an ordinary workspace. Kind of dirty. You should have cleaned up on Friday. But when you get there, it becomes holy ground. Because you're there. And you are bringing the Holy Spirit with you. Now, we struggle, just like the world struggles, wondering whether this is a good idea. Do I want to welcome the Holy Spirit? Do I want to welcome that presence of God? Or do I want to hold that at arm's length? And the struggle in our lives and the struggle in our church is the same as the struggle going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. How much God can I bear present in my life? And you'll be tempted, you'll be tested in ways that are unique to you to say, yeah, that's probably enough, God. I'm going to hold the rest of God at arm's length. But the more you invite God in, the more you become an agent of creating the temple every place you step. People who hate and are filled with resentment and rage, you can either add to that hate or you can show God's love. People who are hurting. You can either make that pain worse. Or you can be an instrument of healing for them. People who are in need.
You can pass by on the other side. Or you can bring them in the embrace of God's presence and help them. Early in the book of Revelation, God says, and again, this is another one I didn't have time to put in, or I didn't have room to put in. I stand at the door and knock. Now, he wasn't talking. We use that often in an evangelistic setting. Now, he wasn't talking to non-Christians who need to be converted. He was talking to Christians who had decided they had enough God and, and, and I don't want any more. And he says, we stand at the door and knock. And if you open to us, we will come in and we will eat with you. God wants to use you to bring his presence into the world. It's his plan. Right now, it's his plan that wherever you step, become holy ground, the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. It's not the final stage. Turns out there's an even grander stage to come. That's what heaven and all of our talk about the end of the age is, is about. Again, I was spoiled for choice, but I chose this one passage. You can go and read all of Revelation 21 and 22 if you want full context. But Revelation 21, verses 22 and 25. The last point was, ever since Jesus, the church becomes God's temple, this point says, the final stage of God's plan is to bring all of us into God's temple forever. Revelations 21, verses 22 through 25 I do not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. No day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. What the world needs now is God. Sweet God. That's the only thing that there's just too little of. And one day, God will bring His dwelling to meet us in the new heaven, the new earth. The old things passed away. The new has come. And we will be in the presence of the One who has always been the source of everything that made us happy. He Himself will wipe away our tears. He Himself will cure our diseases. He Himself will make us pure and make us joyful forever. That's what the world needs. That's what we're heading for. That's the message that we tell people week after week. Brothers and sisters, you are priests and priestesses. You are kings and queens in the service of the Almighty God. This week, wherever you go, every footstep you take becomes holy ground. If you need to respond to God's invitation, if you need to respond to His loving embrace to say, come into my temple, come into my people, Come be part of my conquest of the world. Make my presence known. If you want to be part of that, if you need prayers, 
to, to welcome God more deeply into your life if you are ready to receive baptism so that your sins can be washed away and you can begin the new life. If you need any of these things, why don't you come as we stand and are led in song.